Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the Charlottesville Quarantine Report. This one's going out on the evening of May 29, 2020. I'm Sean Tubbs, the creator of the Charlottesville Podcasting Network. This edition of the show recaps the past week of gubernatorial briefings from Governor Ralph Northam, and also features an interview put together for the show by the Center for Nonprofit Excellence. Frank Dukes will talk about hope and resiliency. Leadership is um, showing by example, a willingness to share the burden, um, and um, and is really poor leadership when you when you don't see that. You now have to wear a mask inside businesses in Virginia, according to Governor Northam's Executive Order 63. On Tuesday, Governor Northam addressed the publication of photographs that showed him without wearing a mask last weekend at Virginia Beach. People held me accountable, and I appreciate that. In the future, when I'm out in the public, I will be better prepared. Let's get going with the show. First, some information. The death toll in Virginia from COVID-19 is at 1,358 as of Friday, May 29th. Testing capacity has increased significantly this week, with 46,381 samples processed, compared with about 26,000 samples processed over a week in last April. On Friday, the percent positive was down to 13.4, down from 14.3% on Monday, May 25th. These numbers are being used to determine when it will be appropriate Virginia to enter the second phase of the Forward Virginia plan to reopen the economy. The University of Virginia will reopen for the fall semester with in-person instruction beginning on August 25th. That's according to a report in the Cavalier Daily. However, the semester will end before the Thanksgiving break. Not all of the details have been revealed, but larger classes will still be taught online, and there will be options for those who don't feel safe to be there. More information will be announced by mid-June. On the day that Executive Order 63 came into effect, requiring facial coverings to be worn inside public spaces, Albemarle County distributed over 1,700 masks. Pickup locations were spread all across the county. Another similar event is being planned soon. On today's show, we'll take a listen to pieces from two press briefings from Governor Ralph Northam. One now, then the interview, then another one later. On Tuesday, the governor addressed images that showed him without a mask outside at Virginia Beach on Memorial Day weekend. The city was allowed to open the oceanfront on May 22nd after demonstrating that they had a plan in place to enforce physical distancing. On Saturday, I visited the oceanfront with the intention of speaking to the mayor, thanking first responders and ambassadors, and seeing how the reopening plan was working. I also plan to take a few questions from the press. On my way to talk with the reporters, some well-wishers came up to me and asked to take pictures. I was not prepared because my mask was in the car. I take full responsibility for that. People held me accountable, and I appreciate that. In the future, when I'm out in the public, I will be better prepared. We're all forming new habits and routines, and we're all adjusting to this new normal. On Friday, May 29th, 
Northern Virginia, the city of Richmond, and Accomack County have all now entered into the phase one of the Forward Virginia Reopening Plan. However, for specific businesses, this is not mandatory. I want to emphasize that while phase one loosens some restrictions, it does not require any business or place of worship to open until they are comfortable that they can do so safely. Just because you can open doesn't mean that you have to open. The big news on Tuesday was that Phase 1 now comes with an additional requirement from the governor. Executive Order 63 went into effect at 12.01 a.m. on Friday, May 29th. Everyone will need to wear a face covering when you're inside at a public place starting this Friday. That's at a store, a barber shop, a restaurant, on public transportation, at a government building, or anywhere where people can congregate in groups. I am taking this step because science increasingly shows us that the virus spreads less easily when everyone is wearing face coverings. Exceptions are granted if you are eating or drinking at a restaurant, outside, if you are exercising, or if you have a health condition. Northam said it was important to get some more masks to some sectors of the population. I know that even these steps are going to be difficult for some of our most vulnerable populations. Throughout this pandemic, we've seen community groups step up to help out, and I hope that can be the case here. If you're a group that can help provide face coverings to people who don't have them, please consider ways to do that. My administration is working to provide masks to targeted at-risk populations, but every bit helps. This is a matter of public health, and as a result, any enforcement that is needed will be done by our health officials. This is not a criminal matter, and our law enforcement, our police, and our sheriffs will not have a role in enforcing this. And as we heard at the top of the show, Albemarle County distributed over 1,700 masks on Friday. Now, we'll hear more about enforcement of this mask protocol later on in the show, as there are still some open questions. But at the end of the press briefing on May 26th, Northam was asked an important question by Mel Leonor of the Richmond Times-Dispatch. Are you being tested regularly for COVID-19? I know people who saw you interacting with people pretty closely over the weekend wondered whether you exposed yourself. Are you uh, regularly being tested and have you received an antibody test? The question is, am I being regularly tested? Um, And I assume you you mentioned antibody, but uh, with the nasal swab as well. And to date, I haven't been. But uh, the message that I wanted to put forward today is that uh, we have a lot of great community testing sites out there. uh, And I look forward uh, to going to one of those sites in the near future, Mel, uh, being tested and and also demonstrating to the rest of Virginians uh, how easy this test is to do and encourage more Virginians to be tested. We'll hear more about Northam and testing later on in the program. For now, let's move on to the next segment. In the past 11 weeks, I have put out 35 shows before this one. Along the way, I've been trying to recruit others to help. The Center for Nonprofit Excellence has stepped up, and I'm pleased to announce the first in a series of interviews about hope and resiliency during the pandemic.
I'm helping them to produce this series, which you'll be able to continue to listen to both here on this podcast and on the CNE website. But let's get to this one and hear from our host. Hi, I'm Mary Davis Hamlin from the Center for Nonprofit Excellence, and I'm so pleased to welcome you to the first session in our series called Hope and Resilience Conversations. It seems more important than ever to learn from those wise ones that are around us, and our first guest is surely one of those. Frank Dukes from IEN is a friend and mentor to many of us, including me, and his work has impacted communities all over the country, and dare I say, maybe all over the world. Um, I really want to give such a warm welcome to Frank, and I'd like to turn it over to you, Frank, just to say a few words about yourself, and then we'll start our conversation. Sure. Very glad to be with you, Mary Davis, and thank you for doing this. Um, I think that uh, the center uh, certainly has been providing um, advice and guidance, you know, for a lot of people, and as we all need it, you know, in this time too. So, um, yeah, and I work currently, but also the last 30 years actually have worked at uh, what's now, we call ourselves the Institute for Engagement and Negotiation. We're part of the University of Virginia and we do our work uh, around the country, um, a little bit around the world actually, although mostly with people that come here and visit us from around the world too. And our work is around helping bring people together, particularly when there are issues or um, conflicts that are threatening to pull people and communities apart. And we just figure out ways to have people have effective conversations. And um, I've been in Charlottesville since 1973 um, and um, currently um, isolating myself with my uh, wife, longtime partner, Linda, and we have um, two kids, one in Chicago, grown kids, and one in uh, Pennsylvania. So um, we've been um, doing a lot of FaceTime and a lot of Zoom personally, as well as professionally, too. Well, thank you for being here. Um, I'd like to start off our conversation with just a, a bit of a general question, and we can sort of see where we go from there. Um, but how do you hold on to hope during times of crisis such as COVID-19? Yeah, it's a great question of hope. Um, and I think uh, one, of, one of my um, funny little um, essays that I did once, uh, kind of challenging a professor um, who was having us read something about sort of optimistic, the, the, the need for hope and bringing hope and optimism to every kind of situation. And I kind of made fun of that, e even though the fact is we do need hope, right? We do need to be able to hold on to hope. But I think that's one of the lessons I have um, really gathered really more in the last several years too, um, that you can be hopeful and also you can be mourning. You can be, you know, you can let yourself be sad. You can be missing um, what it is that you miss and so forth. Mm -hmm. And it's actually even better to be able to do that. Um, and I find it myself easier to hold on to that hope too. I think also, this is probably gonna be the answer to all the questions you have, but um, for me, it's connection. So, and being connected to people at work and finding authentic ways to connect despite the distance that we have. Being connected with my family. I am really fortunate that my wife and I are able to be at home you know, together and just extraordinarily grateful that we have FaceTime uh, and Zoom, despite the fact that I get um, so tired of Zoom calls too, like everybody else, but on the other hand, I'm so grateful for that. So being able to maintain connections with mm -hmm. people, my family, we get together, uh, the extended family, every week or two um, for a gathering, um, which we all value. 
and I literally um, get together with my um, grandson, who's only one year old. Um, so he does have a little bit of help from his parents doing that. But we probably see them two or three times a day. Um, they claim it's so that um, it's for their benefit, you know, so that they get to see us. But we think that they're really, it's part of their self-care for us. So, um, and I think that also the trusting that um, we've, we've been through a lot of issues before. Um, a lot of communities, a lot of countries have been through a lot of issues before, um, you know, war, famine, um, and so forth. And people come out the other end. And um, my hope uh, is that we will come out the other end understanding a little bit more about the world that already existed before and seeing some of the, you know, some of the harms that were affecting communities that have been revealed, some of the racial disparities and so forth um, that are now more evident to more people. Um, so I actually do have a lot of hope um, through connection, through keeping my eyes open, but also being willing, you know, to mourn when that's appropriate too. Mm. You know, I look, I like what you said around mourning um, kind of brings hope more alive in some ways that you need to couple them often. Yeah, very good. Um, when you think about um, resilience and you think about what you know now that maybe you didn't know um, in your earlier years, now that you're an oh wise one, um, what do you know around that? What can you tell people around what supports resilience for you? Yeah, resilience is one of my favorite words. And I think, you know, I went like two thirds of my life without even being aware of it. And um, our institute actually used to have the word environment in our name. And so I first came across that word through, uh, through environmental elements. And I think it's actually pretty useful to think about that. Uh, you know, a lot of people just think, oh, the ability to bounce back, right? But um, resilience in ecological terms is the ability of a system to return to the same functions that it had before. So it doesn't mean that it didn't have loss, doesn't mean that there was a harm, you know, that there wasn't a harm to it, um, but it's able to maintain, it's able to restore those functions. Um, and it, it also means that oftentimes it changes, you know? So mm -hmm. um, for me, the idea of resilience is a, is a powerful, it's really a metaphor, but it's also, you know, a fact that uh, of course we all say, oh, this person's really resilient, you know, when they've overcome something, but I think, but also allowing ourselves to recognize that we'll be changed uh, in that. But as long as we maintain our sort of core function, so are relationships important? Yes. Are we able to maintain the relationships? Yes. Even though we're doing it in different ways. Um, and I desperately miss being able to, you know, hug, you know, different people at different times. But um, um, I, I think that's a key element for me. And then also just looking at so many examples of so many people. Um, and I know it, it make it, tiring for people to hear, but, um, you know, the people that are on the front lines of patient care, um, the, the family members have had to, you know, see their loved ones um, go into the hospital, um, and um, the, the ones that have been able to recover, and the ones who haven't been able to recover, and um, knowing that their families have to, you know, continue. So um, we've been very fortunate in my family. Um, I do have a brother who works on the front line in healthcare. Um, and we're deeply concerned about him, but, um, mm. but he also, you know, he's able to connect with us on a regular basis. When you think about leadership right now, and you've been such a community leader and, um, and have made such a difference to so many people in your role as a leader, what do you think leaders need to be doing right now? Yeah, I think there are different types of leaders. And I think everybody, you know, can be a leader, um, in their own way. I think, um, 
one thing that's really hard for me right now, and probably a lot of other people too, I, I'm used to, I'm used to doing a lot. Um, <laughs> and because I'm in a vulnerable age population and you know, my wife also in medical conditions, you know, we actually, there are a lot of things that some people are doing that we really admire um, that can't do that. So, um, but we're seeing them, you know, leadership and, and people that are uh, making meals, people that are making masks um, and so forth. I, I think a, a big part of leadership that most people don't think about is listening, listening mm -hmm. to what the needs are, um, listening to um, the different um, different communities, and particularly um, listening really hard when we don't get to hear or see from you know people that are affected but that tend to be invisible. And again, looking mm -hmm. at some of the racial disparities um, mm -hmm. that, that we're seeing in the, how COVID nineteen has affected different communities. Um, you know, the Native Americans, uh, African Americans, uh, Latinx community and so forth, um, and, and being able to listen to what their needs are, um, and being, being willing to follow, uh, you know, that also when, I, when I'm not in a position that I can be leading to. Um, I think also there's been some really good examples of leadership of um, people taking pay cuts. So we're seeing, yeah. you know, there are people who are significantly affected because of being ill, right? Or um, because of losing the jobs or having their pay cut. And so when you see leadership say, I'm willing to do this too, I'm not just asking you to do something mm -hmm. that I won't ask myself to do. Leadership is um, showing by example, a willingness to yeah. share the burden. Um, and, um, and it's really poor leadership when you, when you don't see that. Um, yeah. And I think all of us have that capability of doing that within our own family. Um, I think another element of that is being willing to show vulnerability. Um, yeah. And I'm thinking there's sometimes when I've been in tears, you know, in front of people and, um, and I've even said sometimes that's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of caring. And um, now you don't have to cry to show that you're caring too, right? All the time, but it can be a sign of caring too. And I think for this time for us to be able to be vulnerable is a, is a powerful statement for leadership too. Is there any else thing else we've um, should ask you this uh, morning or anything else you'd like to add before we conclude this conversation? I know a lot of people already knew this, that community is important and community means caring for each other and stepping up to do that uh, in different ways. Um, I think there's been this sort of false dichotomy uh, that I've seen some people play out on this idea that uh, it's the people that want to, you know, care for the people that are ill and, and prevent further illness. Um, versus the people that want to, you know, reopen and, and get the commerce going, get the economy going and so forth. The people that I know who are, um, who've been most active and deeply concerned about, uh, about staying safe, you know, about really promoting the idea of the social distancing, who are making masks for other people, you know, who are forwarding articles talking about the, the harm that can be done if we reopen, are also the people that are actually working to take care of, of those who've lost jobs. So donating salary, you know, um, making donations to the Charlottesville Area Community Foundation uh, and so forth. So um, I think beware the sort of um, polarizing language um, that is so easy to fall into and, um, and look for ways that um, community can be made, uh, you know, community can be strengthened. Um, I know it's hard, um, especially for those of us that have to stay you know, isolated. Um, it, it's hard for us to be able to do that. Um, and so look to those who can offer some guidance about being able to do that. 
And, and one, of the, one of those elements of guidance is being an empathetic listener, hearing the concerns that people have, and, um, um, and, and looking for ways that we can help create community. We know that um, we need to continue to improve our community. We need to continue to strengthen our community, whether in, you know, whenever we come out of uh, the COVID-19 isolation, and however that comes out, we need to do that in a way that protects the most vulnerable people those at risk from the illness, but also those that um, have been at risk and, and continue to be at risk or even more risk for economic harm too. Thank you, Frank. I so appreciate you being here with us. That was Mary Davis Hamlin interviewing Frank Dukes as part of the Center for Nonprofit Excellence's Hope and Resiliency series. We'll have more conversations like this on future shows. Now, if you'll recall, Frank has been also relearning how to play the piano and has shared his tunes on Facebook, and I've used that as bumper music, and you're hearing him now. When we come back, we'll have more from Governor Ralph Northam. You're listening to the Charlottesville Quarantine Report. This week marked the first time that Virginia went to two briefings rather than three. That's press briefings, that is. Next on the show, we're going to hear elements from Governor Ralph Northam's press conference on Thursday, May 28th. Today, I want to start on a somber note. Yesterday, the United States reached a sad milestone. More than 100,000 Americans have died from COVID-19, including 1,000 338 Virginians. They were all individuals with their own story. And it's important that we remember that these aren't just numbers. They are real people. They are our friends, they are our neighbors, and they are our loved ones. And that is why we work every day to limit the spread of this virus and keep Virginia healthy and safe. It's why it is so important that everyone continue to please act responsibly to reduce the chances of getting or spreading the virus. Let's get a reminder real quick of what phase one actually means now that it has been extended to all of Virginia. This includes Northern Virginia, Accomack County, and the city of Richmond. As a reminder, in phase one, non-essential retail and houses of worship may open at 50% capacity. Restaurants may have outdoor seating at 50% capacity. Gyms and fitness centers are allowed to conduct outdoor fitness classes. And salons and barbershops may operate with strict requirements for social distancing and face coverings. Face coverings are a good idea because we know, and the CDC agrees, that face coverings in public reduce transmission of this virus. And it's just the right thing to do to protect the people around you as well as workers. But what about enforcement? What can actually happen? 
Now, to answer that, Northam brought in another member of his administration. Thank you, Governor. Rita Davis, counsel to the governor. The enforcement mechanism in Executive Order 63, which is also amended order of public health emergency five, is not a new process. It is a statutory process by which all orders of public health emergencies are enforced. This standard statutory process has been used in all five orders of public health emergency issued by the state commissioner and in conjunction with the governor's executive orders to date. It was not created specifically for Executive Order 63, and it is not new. Executive Order 63, however, relying on that very standard enforcement mechanism in Title 32.1 in the Health Code, provides two avenues by which the Department of Health or any local health department enforces the state health commissioner's order. The first is a civil process by which an injunction is obtained to enforce the public health order. The second is a warrant issued by a magistrate. Those are the procedures by which the governor has repeatedly stated he expects any enforcement to take place. But even then, the governor has stated that only gross, egregious, and repeated conduct in violation of the order should rise to the attention of the Department of Health. And although the governor does not expect business owners to enforce Executive Order 63, he does encourage them to take the opportunity to educate a non-compliant patron regarding the importance of wearing a face covering while inside the business. What is important to remember in all of this is that it should not be the responsibility of the Virginia Department of Health to make sure you are wearing your mask. And it certainly should not be the responsibility of law enforcement or a business to make sure you are wearing a face covering. Rather, it is the personal responsibility of each and every one of us to comply with Executive Order 63. It is the right thing to do. And it's the right thing to do to protect oneself, to protect one's family, and your fellow Virginians. Did you get that? I have a suspicion we're going to come back to this again in the near future. Northam said that Virginia will remain in phase one for at least another week. He said data continues to show that the percentage of positive cases is down and that testing capacity is going to keep increasing. Our testing is a combination of public testing events and tests that you can get at your doctor's office, medical clinic, or at pharmacies that are offering tests. Today, I'm really happy and excited to announce that 39 CVS pharmacies in Virginia will start offering testing using self-swab kits with an employee watching to make sure that you do it correctly. You can see on this slide where the CVS locations are in Virginia. This is just one of the partnerships we're working on to ensure that testing is widely available across Virginia. And to help Virginians understand how easy it should be to get a test, I intend to get tested soon as well. I'll have more updates on that next week. In other news announced Thursday, Virginia beaches will be allowed to open if they follow proper protocols and as long as there are no large gatherings. And at least one sporting event may soon begin again. Today, we are also revising our orders to allow NASCAR 
and other vehicle and horse racetracks to run single-day events under strict guidelines starting tomorrow. As a matter of fact, NASCAR will be running a race on June the 10th in Martinsville. These events will not be open to the public and no spectators will be allowed, among other restrictions. Because these are open air events with space in between the participants, we believe there is minimal risk in allowing them to go forward with restrictions. In the midst of this community health crisis, there is an ongoing economic crisis as well. Still, Northam had some economic development news on Thursday. This week, we announced that Microsoft will invest $64 million to establish a new software development and research and development hub in Reston. This will create 1,500 new jobs, and we're glad to have all of them. And we expect to have more jobs announcements, including in rural parts of our state in the next few days. Additionally, the foundation for a new wind turbine was just installed in federal waters off of our coast, just off of Virginia Beach. This is the first turbine foundation in U.S. federal waters and marking an important step as we continue to move toward a 100% carbon-free energy grid by 2050. Summer has arrived in Charlottesville this week with high levels of humidity. People are gathering more than they were, and there are concerns that a second wave will hit. Here's a question from Amy Friedenberger of the Roanoke Times. Uh, The University of Virginia's weekly run of the model shows that with restrictions lifted May 15th that cases are going to surge by thousands a day this summer, larger numbers than what we're seeing right now. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on this model and if cases were to spike like this, would you put business restrictions back in place statewide or regionally? The, the second part of your question, if we see cases spike, uh, if we see hot spots, uh, again, we have better ability to, to test, we have better ability to do the tracing. And, and so if we get to the point where there are hot spots or um, areas that, that are having difficulties with numbers that are not going in the, in the right direction, if you will, then obviously we'll, we'll uh, uh, make those adjustments. But, um, you know, as far as the uh, University of Virginia model, Um, I would have to sit down. I haven't looked at it in the last few days, but we have put in a lot of restrictions, especially holding Northern Virginia back for for two weeks, Richmond, uh, Accomack County. Um, I don't know if the amount of testing that we have available and will have available plays into their model. Um, So there are a lot of variables, um, but I guess it's just a a general statement. Um, We are looking at the data. Uh, I'm looking at Uh, today, uh, what we have available. Uh, Obviously, the models are important. We have been following those, uh, but um, we will just take this on a day-to-day basis. Uh, And again, as we move forward, and I think something that Virginians know, because I want to know because I'm asked often, is when are we going to go into phase two? Um, And the earliest uh, that we'll do that uh, is uh, a week from tomorrow, which will be June the 5th. So far, there are no details on the governor's website about what Phase 2 would look like. Still, Amy Friedenberger's question prompted a follow-up, which yielded slightly more information about why Phase 2 won't happen just yet. 
Um, the reason why we are waiting another week uh, is because of the incubation period of this. Uh, we want to be uh, very careful and, and deliberate as we move forward, and we just don't have the data yet uh, to move into phase three, and we'll continue to follow that. I've had discussions with our epidemiologists uh, as early as a couple, uh, recently rather, as a couple of hours ago, and so we'll continue to monitor the data, and as soon as we feel comfortable that the trends are uh, moving in a positive direction, then we will make the announcement uh, as to when we can go into uh, phase two. Next week, there will be more information on guidelines for youth sports, as well as for what will happen in the fall in public schools. When are our children going to be safely able to get back into our schools? And I just wanted to let you know that there are a lot of people, uh, we're having a lot of great discussions uh, led by our Secretary of Education, Adif Carney, our uh, uh, Superintendent of Public Instruction, James Lane. Uh, We had a meeting this morning uh, regarding that. And so we'll have some more announcements on Tuesday. Um, But we're going to do everything that we can uh, to make sure that uh, your children uh, can get back into the classrooms and that they can get back there safely and responsibly. And I just wanted to let you know a a lot of discussion, a lot of effort is, is going into that decision, and I'll have more to say about that on Tuesday. time of year that high school seniors across Virginia and the nation would have been collecting their diplomas at graduation ceremonies. Northam addressed them on Thursday. You have all worked for years toward the goal of graduating, and now that you have reached this milestone, you cannot celebrate it together with your classmates, friends, family, and teachers. And I know this must be very, very difficult. This has been the Charlottesville Quarantine Report, and in the spirit of this being the time for our graduates of our high schools, let's conclude today's episode with a virtual ceremony put together by Virginia Public Media. I thank them for this audio and also for the audio of the governor's press conferences, which I've been able to bring you now for 36 episodes. I'll be back with another episode over the weekend, but for now, let's listen to the, let's listen to some words for the future to our graduates. I'm Sean Tubbs. Thank you for listening. My hopes and dreams for the class of 2020 is that they always remember to be the most authentic version of themselves and to always be kind to others. For us to continue moving forward. I know in the midst of chaos right now, but something greater is on the other side. That we learn from these experiences and be exemplary with our increased strength and resilience. That they might use their experiences to inspire others to love one another. That we will be able to fight injustice that we see and truly be the change we want to see in the world. I hope we continue to strive for the life we want to pursue, whether that be through going to college or joining the workforce or taking a gap year to settle what we actually want to do with our lives. My hopes and dreams for this class are that you attack the post-grad life head on and with an open mindset. I'm sure you'll do great. For you all to always stay true to yourselves and don't let other people's opinions control you. I hope that everyone believes that they're worth the space that they take up. Congratulations to you, Virginia's graduating class of 2020. My hopes and dreams for the class of 2020 is to be the generation called to fix the problems, not the generation that is calling. My hopes and dreams are that you remain resilient, you remain courageous, that you step 
into every room as if you own it. That we can look back on this experience and realize that just because our path gets a little bit foggy sometimes, doesn't mean we have to turn around and walk away. When there's a will, there's always a way. Given we face adversity now, we can continue to face adversity in the future and not let it hold us back. Despite not experiencing Senior Spirit Week, or Senior Skip Day, or prom, we will graduate. We are thriving in the midst of a pandemic. That we use this situation as fuel for a fire, and that we seize this opportunity to go make a difference. And my hopes and dreams for the class of 2020 are to remain passionate about the things we believe in. Despite the obstacles we have faced, it is not time to give up. Our passions are crucial in this world's future, as we are the generation of change. I commend you all for the hard work you have accomplished, and I urge you to pursue the things that make you happy in life. We can get through anything. Our pasts have proven that. Good luck, class of 2020. Dream big, believe in yourself, and never take no for an answer. And always remember, tough times don't last forever. Tough people do.